following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are back in the series in 2 Corinthians, and uh, I want us just to get our bearings a little bit because we've taken a break from this series for a couple of weeks uh, while Mick and Ruby Duncan were with us, which has been wonderful. But if you're just joining us or you've been out of the loop for a wee while, we've been tracking through this book of the Bible for a good chunk of the year since about Easter, 2 Corinthians. So you can open up your Bible if you've got one or the Bible app on your phone or your device if you've got that. The words will be on the screen as well. But I want us just to recap a little bit where we're up to in this book because we're diving back in to chapter 5 today. But you may or may not remember much of what we've talked about up to this point because we've covered quite a bit of ground. So I'm going to do this with a few visual illustrations up on screen, courtesy of Rob Turvey. Uh, thanks, Rob, for putting these together. That just talk us through what's been going on. So, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians. Paul, who wrote the letter, talks about being comforted by God. He talks about some of his struggles that he's been going through, and he talks about how God has comforted him in his struggles so that he can comfort others in their struggles and he talks about this accusation that's come at him that he's kind of been talking out of both sides of his mouth, saying yes and no at the same time. And he uses that as an opportunity to say to the Corinthians, our message to you is not yes and no, but in Christ Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. He talks about Jesus as the fulfillment, as the center of the whole biblical story. Jesus is our yes and our amen. And then on to chapter 2, this leads into Paul talking about the visit that he made to Corinth, to Corinth Remember the painful visit where he went there and one of the members of the church launched some kind of attack on Paul. He was under threat. But now he says what's important is that we forgive that person, is that we forgive the sinner and not cause unnecessary grief and sorrow to that person. So he calls the community to forgive them. And then this leads him into talking about being the aroma of Christ. Anyone remember this? The aroma of Christ. And that idea of the Roman procession and Paul is like one of the incense bearers. And we're all called to that role of spreading the aroma of Christ. And to some we're the aroma that brings life and to some we are the aroma that brings death. But we are spreading this incense, this aroma of Christ to the world. In chapter 3, uh, he talks about we don't need letters of recommendation to commend ourselves because you, Corinthians, are our letters of recommendation, he says, written on our heart, and we are sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And he talks about the old covenant. Hamish talked us through this, that the old covenant's based on the law, which leads to death. And for those who are still living under the old covenant, under the law of Moses, unable to see who Jesus is, he says they're like Moses. Just as Moses had a veil over his face and he couldn't behold the glory of God in a negative sense, those who are still living under the old covenant, they have a veil over their hearts. They can't see Jesus. They can't see who he is. They can't see where the story ends. And so they're living in this state of spiritual blindness. That leads them into chapter 4, where he talks about the gospel, this glorious truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We talked about that and how that truth, wonderful as it is, is, is veiled to some people. They can't see it. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They can't see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. So Paul talks about the gospel and he talks about how this incredible gospel, we contain it within these jars of clay, these earthen broken vessels, uh, our bodies, our, 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 the broken reality of our present. And that leads Paul on to talk about some of his sufferings, how he's been afflicted, he's been perplexed, he's been persecuted, he's been struck down. But he ends that chapter with that wonderful statement that even though we're going through these light and momentary troubles, they are eclipsed 
by the eternal weight of glory that is going to be ours when Jesus Christ returns. And so he's focusing us on new creation. He's focusing us on resurrection. And that hope breathes encouragement into Paul's present circumstances. And he picks up on that hope in chapter 5, which is where we broke off the series by drawing this contrast between the momentary tent, the earthly tent that we have, which is our present bodies, our present human bodies, broken and frail though they are, and he contrasts that with our heavenly dwelling, which is not the heavenly mansion in the sky, but it's our bodies. It's our resurrected bodies, which will be imperishable, indestructible, immortal, unable to decay. They will endure forever. That's what our heavenly bodies are going to be like. So again, Paul goes to that note of hope and triumph and victory of what we will experience when Jesus Christ returns. Resurrection bodies. Everyone got that? We're good? All right. You didn't need the last seven sermons, did you? We've just got that in a nutshell. So that is 2 Corinthians so far. We might have to ask Rob to produce like a little bookmark version of these that you can put in your Bible and bring this back to mind. It's helpful to visualize this stuff, I think. So today, we are going to... Uh, by the way, if anyone has lost a pair of glasses, they're right here. That's how you interrupt a sermon and keep going again. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are going to pick it up today in verse 11 through to 21. And this is a great passage to re-enter the flow of the book. Because in this passage, Paul talks about some themes that are very central in this letter that he's writing. And in fact, in, the, in all of the writings of Paul, there, is, there are some themes here. Because Paul is describing the heart of his ministry. He's describing the ministry that he's received from God, that he's passing on to all of the churches that he's been planting and working with. So this is very central to Paul's life, theology, and ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, starting at verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you've been around Shaw for a little while, you've probably picked up the fact that one of the things that's very central to us here is the idea of God's big story. We talk about this, we put different language around it, we talk about 
God's redemptive story. We talk about the biblical story. We talk about the meta-narrative of Scripture. And we're talking about the idea that the Bible, from beginning to end, tells one story, one overarching story, even though it contains many, many little stories and other parts of literature within it. And we see it as part of our purpose here to help one another understand that story and live out of that story. And so we work that into our ministries in various ways. Biffy is introducing, starting to introduce a curriculum in children's ministry that takes children through the whole biblical story every year, using different stories each year, but taking kids through the meta-narrative of Scripture each year so they get a sense of the whole thing. Uh, Roland, in, in term one, took our young people, our students, High school is through the Bible in six acts, like a six-act play, giving them an overview of Scripture. We're doing Long Story Short at the moment, which gives people an overview of the biblical story for those who are exploring the Christian faith. Uh, this is our approach to preaching, that what I try to do most weeks is take a passage of Scripture and put it in the context of the whole biblical story. That's what we're about, is God's big story. But even though that's true, it's often difficult to articulate the essence of what that story is. If you had to summarize the whole biblical story in a sentence, what would you say? Because it's a big story. There's a lot in the Bible. And it's hard to sometimes reduce that right down. What I've tended to do when I've summarized the whole biblical story for people is to come to this passage. And in fact, to come to one verse in this passage and just one phrase within that verse. It's verse 19. And this is the phrase that I use. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. I think that's a very fitting summary of the whole biblical story. The, the biblical story is the story of God reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And I would say that even within that phrase, if you want to reduce it down further, if a phrase is too long for you, you just want one word to sum up the whole biblical story, I think the word would be reconciliation which is a word Paul uses several times in this chapter, reconciliation. That word, I think, contains within it the entire witness of Scripture. That might seem like a huge claim to make. How can one word possibly sum up the whole biblical story? That seems hopelessly reductionistic, but that's the case I want to make today. That's what I want to try and do, is convince you that the entire biblical narrative is captured in that one word, reconciliation. And I want to do that by zooming in and zooming out. Zooming in on this text because we're talking about this passage. I want to look at what Paul says about reconciliation here. That's his theme in this passage. But then zooming out and showing how reconciliation, the idea of reconciliation, is a key that unlocks the whole narrative of Scripture. It gives us a lens through which to look at the whole biblical story. So I want to start with that verse that I just mentioned, in the heart of this passage. We'll dive straight in and then work our way outwards from there. So verse 19, Paul says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. I want to just point out a couple of things about that verse. Firstly, when Paul talks about reconciliation, he's not talking about reconciliation between people. He's talking about reconciliation between humanity and God that there needs to be this reconciliation between us and God. He talks about human reconciliation at other times, other places, but here his focus is on God and humanity. And notice the way that he says this. If you look at, here's a little English grammar question for you. If you look at that statement, who is the subject of that statement? Who is doing the reconciling? God, right? God's the subject. Who is the object of that statement? Who is being reconciled? The world. We are, right? Humanity. And that's consistent 
every time Paul talks in his letters about God and humanity being reconciled, it's always God doing the reconciling. It's always humanity being reconciled. God, the Bible never talks about God reconciling himself to us. Always talks about we being reconciled to God. Why? Because reconciliation's only needed when a relationship's been damaged. And who's damaged the relationship? Well, it's not God. It's us. God has done nothing to violate the relationship with us. We have violated the relationship with Him. We've damaged our relationship with God. Therefore, we stand in need of reconciliation. Paul puts this in very severe terms in Romans 5, where he says that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him. While we were God's enemies. I don't know how it sits with you to think about yourself as an enemy of God. That's not a comfortable phrase, is it? That at some point, every one of us in this room was an enemy of God or is an enemy of God. That's harsh. That's not politically correct. That's difficult. That is something I think our secular culture has a very, very difficult time accepting. We know the idea of human enemies. We're very, com we're very familiar with that. But the idea that humanity is an enemy of God is a very uncomfortable idea in our secular world. I mean, you might look at some people and say, well, that person might, might be classed as an enemy of God. You might look at someone like Richard Dawkins, who's a militant atheist, who verbally attacks anyone of any religion, who believes in any kind of God, and has made it like a crusade to oppose belief in God of any kind. So you could say, well, he's kind of an enemy of God, even though he doesn't believe in God, but he's still an enemy of Christianity. But most non-Christians aren't like that, are they? Most non-Christians don't see themselves as enemies of God. You might be here today. You might not be a Christian, but you might be a very nice non-Christian. You might be a very sympathetic non-Christian. You might be very open to Christianity, very supportive, very open to the idea of God, to the Christian faith. The fact that you're in church this morning is a good thing, and it shows you're open to the idea of church. And you don't consider yourself to be an enemy of God at all. You're not openly hostile. You're not openly aggressive or attacking towards God. But here's the reality. In the Bible, this idea of us being enemies of God, it's not about us openly attacking God or being aggressive towards God. It's simply our refusal to live under God's authority. That's all it is. It's just simply our refusal to live under the loving authority of God. It would be no different than if someone in Paul's day said, I refuse to acknowledge the authority of Caesar. I think he's a nice guy. I get on with him all right. I like his haircut, but I just don't acknowledge the authority of Caesar in Rome. They might be a very pleasant person. They may not be openly hostile, but they would be considered an enemy of Rome because they have not been willing to bring themselves under the authority of the empire. That's, that's the idea behind this concept that we're enemies of God. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story. When our first human parents tried to subvert their relationship with God and turn it on its head. They didn't become openly hostile towards God. They didn't become aggressive. They just simply took the relationship and they flipped it around. They made themselves the authority and they brought God down below their level and they started relating to him on their terms rather than on God's terms. They just changed the power structure of the relationship or tried to. They subverted the authority structure of the relationship. That is what did irreparable damage to the relationship between God and humanity. Ever since then, humanity has been 
an enemy of God. Because just like our first human ancestors, we have refused to live under the authority of God's loving rule. This has characterized humanity ever since, and that's the position we find ourselves in now. Some people might be actively enemies of God. Most people, I would say most 21st century New Zealanders, are passive enemies of God. Would you agree? Just passive enemies of God. They don't think about God. It doesn't even occur to them. He's not in their frame of reference. He's just not even on their radar. But they are passive enemies of God. By being unwilling to live under the loving rule of God, that just makes us an enemy of God. You can't understand what Paul says here about reconciliation unless you understand that backstory, that we're enemies of God, because otherwise there's no need for reconciliation, is there? Reconciliation is only required when a relationship's been damaged. So it has been. We have done irreparable damage to our relationship with God. We can't fix it. We can't sort it out. We are separated and alienated from God. A relationship that should have been characterized by peace is now characterized by enmity. That means just opposition. And so we find ourselves as enemies of God. Now, that's enough bad news. Here's the good news. Here's what Paul says about that. God has taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself. We can't do it. We weren't looking for him, but he came in search of us and has reconciled us to himself. And verse 21 spells out how this has happened. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if reconciliation is at the heart of the biblical story, at the heart of reconciliation is the cross. That's where you go. If the whole biblical story is around the theme of reconciliation, then the cross is the absolutely central point in the biblical story, the death of Jesus. That's where reconciliation happened. And how it happened is that Jesus, in some sense, I don't, I don't understand how this happened, but in some way on the cross, when Jesus died, he became sin for us. That's a profound statement. Just take a second and let that sink in. Paul doesn't say that Jesus carried our sin or paid for our sin or covered our sin. He says God made him to be sin, to become sin. This is not some impersonal transaction that happened. This is Jesus becoming sin for us. That as he took upon himself all the ways in which we've made ourselves enemies of God, he was so utterly consumed by our sin, it became his defining reality. You'd never have seen it if you were looking at him. If you're a bystander there, you see a man being crucified by the empire. But what is happening spiritually is that Jesus was becoming sin for us. Sin consumed him. Sin defined him. Sin enveloped him. Sin immersed him. So when the father looked at his son on the cross, all he saw was what? Sin. Now, we've got to be careful here because Jesus was still the sinless Son of God in some sense. He was still the perfect Son of God. But in terms of taking on our iniquity, He became sin. When the Father looked at His Son on the cross, all He saw was sin. And He could not bear to look. He turned His face away. He loved His Son. And yet He could not bear to look on sin. And He turned His face away from His only Son. Now, the other side of that equation is what Paul says next, that Jesus became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's the same language. Look at it. Jesus became sin or he made him to be sin so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. We don't just get righteousness. We don't just receive it like a commodity. God doesn't just give you this thing called righteousness. But we become the righteousness of God. This is what has happened to you if you're a Christian. That your identity is now in Jesus. Your life swallowed up in his life. So that everything he has is yours. His life becomes your life. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. His inheritance becomes your inheritance. His holiness becomes your holiness. His faithfulness becomes your faithfulness. His obedience toward the Father becomes your obedience toward the Father. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. You are immersed in the identity of Jesus now. Your life hidden with his life. So now when God the Father looks at you, all he sees is righteousness. That's the beautiful flip side of this. That when he looked at Christ on the cross, all he saw was sin. Now when he looks at you, if you're a Christian, all he sees is righteousness. Not because you're righteous in and of yourself. You're not. You were an enemy of God. You weren't looking for him. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. But when he looks at you now, because of the shed blood of Jesus, he sees in you the righteousness of Christ. He sees righteousness. He sees Jesus. He sees his own son because you are immersed in Christ. Your life swallowed up in his life. This is what John Calvin, one of the great theologians of the church, called the wonderful exchange. And it sits at the heart of Christian faith and doctrine and teaching that Christ has become what we are so that we might become what he is. Not that we become God, but that we become righteous because we are in Christ. That is the heart of reconciliation. It's the heart of us being reconciled to God. That because Christ has taken our sin, there's, not, there's no longer anything between us and God. The Bible describes sin like that dividing wall of hostility between us and God. And while that's there, we can't be reconciled. But Jesus has taken it away. So now we can. And we can have peace with God. And our relationship with God is so close now that we relate to him through Jesus. Our relation, we share in the relationship between the Son and the Father. That's how reconciled we are. So that relationship that was once characterized by peace was broken apart through sin, broken apart through us becoming enemies of God, now is put back together and reconciled through the blood of Christ on the cross. That's reconciliation. That's why I say reconciliation is at the heart of the whole biblical story. It tells the whole story and it reaches its climax on the cross where reconciliation was accomplished. But that's not the whole story. And sometimes we leave it there and we shouldn't. Because there's more to the story. Come back to verse 17. Now here's the really big picture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, if you're like me, you used to interpret, I grew up sort of thinking about this verse because there was a song about this verse that we used to sing in church I grew up in. I am a new creation. Anyone else sing that one? I am a new creation, no more in condemnation, here in the grace of God I stand. And it's based on this verse. And so I always thought this verse was just talking about just me and God, that when I become a Christian, I am a new creation. And of course, that's true. We are. I am a new creation and I'm transformed by the grace of God. But I think what Paul's talking about here is bigger than that. Of course, we are new creations. But what he says, literally what he says in the Greek is, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. He doesn't say they are a new creation. He just says, new creation. 
And I think what he's getting at is not just that we are personally transformed, but that when we are reconciled to God, we become part of God's new creation, which is far bigger than just us. We become part of this whole thing called new creation that God is bringing about on planet Earth that transcends the life of any one person. Because you see, come back again to the beginning of the biblical story. When Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just people who were affected. It was creation. Creation came under the curse of sin. That's why Romans 8 says creation is in bondage, crying out for its liberation. The relationship between God and creation is fractured as well. Now, it's not fractured in exactly the same way because creation doesn't sin against God. Only human beings are capable of sinning. But still, our sin has affected creation. The whole of creation was thrown off course by human sin, was thrown off kilter, thrown off the rails. And now there is this disconnect, this, this rupturing of relationship between God and creation. So what God has done on the cross, to put this in the bigger picture, He's reconciled us to Himself, but not just us. He has also, through the shed blood of Christ, reconciled creation to Himself reconciled the cosmos to himself. If you don't believe me, listen to this verse from Colossians 1. Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Did you catch that? All things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul, Paul doesn't just say that God's desire was to reconcile people. He doesn't say God has reconciled some things to himself. He doesn't say God's reconciled most things to himself. What does he say? God has reconciled all things to himself through the cross. All things, not just all people, all things in heaven and on earth. That through the cross, God has reconciled the entire world, the entire creation to himself. And that is why when Jesus returns, God is going to make the whole world new. That's why when you get to Revelation, you get to the end of the biblical story, you have this dramatic statement and the voice from the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. There's that phrase again. All things. All things becoming new. And God will do that. So when Christ returns, when we receive those resurrection bodies, when we inherit the new heavens and the new earth, we will be reconciled people within a reconciled community within a reconciled world. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Reconciled people within a reconciled community, within a reconciled creation. Human beings will have their relationship with God reconciled, will be reconciled to ourselves, will be reconciled to each other, and will be reconciled to the world. Reconciliation will just be the way that things are in the new creation. That's what Paul's talking about when he uses this phrase, new creation. It's this entire new state of affairs. It's an entire new world that is one day going to be in existence through Jesus Christ. But what Paul's saying is that God has not left it until then to start bringing about little glimpses of the new creation. He's not leaving it all to then. But now, when you became reconciled to God, if you're a Christian, the moment that you became reconciled to God, another little piece of new creation popped up in the present. Another piece of the future came rushing forward into the present when you gave your life to Christ. Another piece of that new creation became a present reality. When you and I become reconciled to God, we, our lives become evidence that the new creation is here. 
and it's now and it's present. It's not here in its fullness. We only see tastes of it, little glimpses, little whispers of new creation. But every time a person is reconciled to God, another little glimpse of new creation is popping up. And our lives become a signpost to that greater reality of God's desire to reconcile all things to himself, which he's accomplished already on the cross, and he will outwork when Christ returns. So what I'm wanting to do here is put reconciliation in a bigger picture for you so that when you think about being reconciled to God, you don't just think about this personal relationship where you are reconciled to God. That's at the heart of it, absolutely. Don't want to take anything away from that, personal reconciliation. But I want to place that on a broader canvas so that we see personal reconciliation against the canvas of cosmic reconciliation, which is God's ultimate goal. The only way we can do that is to get a bigger view of sin and the problem of sin, which is cosmic in its scope, and then we get a bigger view of the cross, which is cosmic in its remedy for sin. It stretches as far as the curse is found, as the old hymn says. And so God is reconciling and has reconciled all things to himself. We've got to have this big, big view of God's reconciliatory work on earth, past, present, and future, right? And then against that canvas, I think we can see our mission and we can see our calling. And this is the final dimension here of what Paul says. Have a look at the end of verse 19. He says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul is saying, this incredible gift of reconciliation that we've received, it's not just ours to hold on to, but it's ours to share. It's ours to share with the world that we, we are transformed and then we become agents of reconciliation in the world. We become God's agents of renewal. We become the means by which then God keeps extending reconciliation out into the world. He always uses people. He always uses his people to accomplish his purpose. He doesn't just do these things unilaterally. He wants to use us to continue moving this incredible message of reconciliation out into the world. You are only saved because at some point in time, someone shared the message of reconciliation with you, right? If you belong to Jesus. Someone at some point has shared the message of reconciliation with you, a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, maybe lots of people over a long period of time. Someone shared it with you, and as those who have now been reconciled to God, we're entrusted with this gift, and we're called, and we're invited to share the message of reconciliation with others. We do it by living out a reconciled life before other people. We do it by being a reconciled community and living in relationships where we're pursuing reconciliation so that the church shows the world what a reconciled community looks like, what a piece of new creation looks like. We do it by, sh by, by showing compassion and love, as we've been talking about with Mick and Ruby over the past couple of weeks, walking towards those in need with kindness and love and compassion. And we do it by speaking the message of reconciliation. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There is a time and there is a place to speak the word of reconciliation into the lives of other people and to encourage other people to be reconciled to God. I know it's hard in our 21st century secular culture, but this is our calling and we do this in dependence on this power of the Spirit of God to speak the message of reconciliation to those in our lives and in our worlds. 
there's a woman who's here this morning and she's given me permission to share an email with you. She's been coming along to Cap Jobs, which is our group that we have on Thursday mornings for people that are looking for work or looking for new work. And they've formed a little community, a real little group, encouraging each other, supporting each other actually. And as she's journeyed along, she's come out of some very difficult circumstances, some real struggles. But she's found such hope in this group and she's on such a journey um, toward and with God and exploring what reconciliation looks like. And she gave me permission to just read out this email that she wrote to Olga, who's our Cap Jobs Club manager. So she says, Hi, Olga. Thank you for a lovely talk this morning. I just wanted to say how much it means to me to be able to attend Job Club every Thursday morning. Before coming there, I was in a very bad place mentally, deeply depressed, with suicidal thoughts, as I felt there was no hope for me anymore in any way. But now I am full of hope and I am no longer depressed. Job Club has given me hope of a better future with Jesus by my side. Olga and Noel and the other members have really given me strength to look forward and help me to find what will be best for me in the future as far as an income and finding what God wants for me is very exciting. Jobs Club has given me somewhere safe to come and somewhere I feel happy and comfortable in sharing with others. Thank you, Olga and Noel. It's great, isn't it? It's the story of someone who's on this journey of reconciliation, who's finding hope and encouragement among this little community there and ultimately finding hope and encouragement in God. And this is the calling we have, to journey alongside those around us and offer this message of reconciliation. I want to say to you this morning, if you're here and you're not reconciled to God or you're not sure where you're at, my words to you would be exactly the same as what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Be reconciled to God. That's what he says. Be reconciled to God. Everything that needs to be done for that to happen has happened. Christ has died. The great sacrifice has been made. He's become sin for you so that you can become the, the righteousness of God. And now the ball is in your court and the invitation is there. Be reconciled to God. It doesn't happen automatically. It's something we've got to ask for, something we've got to receive in faith as you ask God to forgive you for being an enemy of him and ask to be reconciled to him through Christ. And I urge you today, be reconciled to God. Take that step. I'd love to talk with you afterwards about taking that step to be reconciled with God if you haven't already. And for those of us who do belong to Jesus, let's cherish this incredible gift of the wonderful exchange. Let's come back and just tell ourselves again the incredible story that we've been reconciled to God, that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the blood of Christ. But let's not leave it there. Let's see reconciliation against this huge canvas, this great backdrop of cosmic reconciliation so that we take in the scope and the breadth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the story that is continuing of God working out that reconciliation leading to the day when all things will be made new. And let's be, let's take seriously our calling to be ambassadors of Christ. That's what Paul is pushing towards here. Let's be ministers of reconciliation to the world. We've got hope to speak. We've got a message to proclaim. Let's pray for the people around us who are not yet reconciled to God. Start there. Lift up those people. Pray for them. Pray for God's working in their lives. Pray for a stirring of faith 
in their hearts. Pray that the veil would be lifted and pray that God would give you opportunity as he allows in the prompting and the nudging of the spirit. To say, you might not be able to share the whole message of reconciliation, but to say something, to speak up, to speak out, to speak forth the word of reconciliation, to speak hope into a desperately broken and hurting and needy world. May we be ministers and agents of God's reconciliation in the world for Christ's sake. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you that this one word, reconciliation, has contained so much truth, more than we can really handle. That Lord, it reminds us that our relationship with you has really been in tatters. But it reminds us, Lord, that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves, that you've reconciled us through Christ. So we thank you, God, for the gift that you've given us, the wonderful exchange. We thank you, Jesus, that you became sin, became a curse for us, so that in you we might take on your righteousness. Help us to, to grasp that a little more. Father, we can be so glib about it, can be so blase, but help us just to take that in a little bit more that we could just sink deeper into your grace, sink deeper into your love, have a greater appreciation for what you've done for us. And God, we want to ask that as a church, you would help us to continue reflecting what a reconciled community looks like. And help us this week, Lord, as we go from here, to be ambassadors, to be agents of reconciliation, encouraging others to be reconciled to God. We pray you'd give us moments this week to speak something of your grace, your hope to other people, to share something of that message, to journey alongside others in some way that might lead to a point, lead to a day where we can say to someone else, I urge you to be reconciled to God. It can happen. It's possible. So God, give us courage and give us faith and give us grace as we seek to be your agents of reconciliation in the world. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.